cats and kittens, we are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. Let me just say one thing. All of my life decisions, both good and bad, have led up to this moment because I'm I'm talking not to a human being, <laughs> to an alien who was sent to this planet to rock us all. She is a singer, she's a songwriter. She's a member of Mink T. She's also a bangle. Uh, there's only one Susanna Hoffs on the planet Earth, and I am talking to her today via the power of Zoom. Woo! Susanna, how Hi. are you? Well, I'm great. I mean, we're talking on the Zoom, and it's it's uh, it's exciting. <laughs> I, I'm excited because we are both music lovers to the extreme degree and uh on the chart on on any chart that you we would be pinging the vu meter or whatever whatever the appropriate analogy is (laughs) we would be right there together and 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 one of the my greatest joys in life is is schmoozing with other music fanatics well as a fan of yours i have watched you and listened to you schmooze with other people most (laughs) recently your conversation eh, a number of months ago with john taylor of duran duran oh Gosh, that was so fun. So incredible. Uh, because yeah. you're both uh, incredible musicians. Not just, oh. you know, obviously you both have had success in the music business, but you're both incredible musicians. So it was so thrilling to watch the two of you sort of trade secrets and talk about the past and talk about, you know, approach to music. Yeah. And, you know, as a fan, I don't want to hear like, I don't want to hear another story about the same things you talk to other DJs about. I want to yeah. hear like real, organic, authentic stuff. And that was, okay. it just bled through that interview with, with John Taylor. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, when I get to have the great fortune of, of, of talking and communing with other musicians, it's, we are, we turn into kids in a candy store and it's all about the passion just begins to flow and ignite other ideas and, oh, but this, this was the song that, you know, changed my life. And this was the song that got me through this hard time or, Oh, can I share you my spot? Share my Spotify list with you, like uh, oh, you know, like sharing all this. The it's like these kind of secret, secret little, I don't know, recipes. Not recipes exactly. I'm not finding the right analogy, but you know, it's just, it's just, um, it's fun. It's fun to be among our peers in these cases. You know, one of the things that I love, and I'm so excited to talk to you about, is I know that musical history is in your DNA. I mean, one of the fun things about you and many of the outfits that you've been in is that you've embraced like the whole history of rock and roll and you've the covers that you have played and honored and sprinkled your own sauce on from (laughs) from the Seeds to the Lottie Dawes to the Smiths to Linda Ah. Ronstadt and Rod Stewart. You know, it's just it's just so thrilling to talk to you because this whole podcast is about the history of rock and roll. And I find that when you talk to people about their favorite artists or their favorite songs, it always takes them back to the first dates, the first jobs, Mm. breakups, heartache, triumph, Mm. success. So what I'm hoping to do today is sort of share the soundtrack of Susanna Hoff's life. Uh, But first, I want to say one thing. You, You mentioned Spotify. I shared with Susanna 
my uh, current uh, Spotify playlist that I've been working on. If anyone wants to listen to it, it's my 93KHJ playlist. With 93KHJ was a very famous radio station in Los Angeles uh, in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it was sort of pop radio, but they they did play some album cuts in there. So you would get Sonny and Cher, The Turtles, The Association. You'd get The Seeds. You'd get Love. Um, so I'm wondering, was that radio station on in the Pacific Palisades? Or where did you grow up in L.A.? Because I know I that you up, did. I grew up near Santa Monica. So technically in an L.A. zip code. Mm-hmm. But um, right right at the border of Santa Monica and, and um, L.A., and on the LA side, so kind of in the west part of Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. uh, KHJ was truly the soundtrack of my childhood. And as a kid growing up in LA, there wasn't any real rapid transit options available. I mean, there there were buses, but you know, you 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 actually experience most of your day in the backseat of the station wagon that your parent is driving. And um, my mom happened to be a swinging 60s mom who wore mini skirts and, you know, go-go boots and um, was absolutely enthralled with music. And so she had KHJ on all the time. So that was sort of flooding through these small speakers and kind of get coming into my being like through the skin into my straight to my heart, you could say, because um, I saw the world of L.A., the the palm trees and the beaches out the window and all this stuff is like the soundtrack of that, my childhood, essentially. And I was always singing along to music even before my mom claims, and I don't know if it's true, that I I had a little crib when I was a baby and she'd have the radio blasting or be playing records when I was a baby and that it had wheels on it and I would just be rolling and rocking and rolling in the crib and kind of cooing along to the music and the crib, she'd find it on the other side of the room because I would have just somehow been so wrapped up in the music that the crib would roll across the room. Not dangerously, everybody. Everything's okay with that. But but so I just always, music always cast a magical spell over me, I guess you could say. Well, I think, well, it worked uh, because you're a magical super being, as I said at the top of the show. Uh, it rubbed off. I love, I just, I had a feeling that KHJ would be in, oh, in yeah. your existence because because of your vast catalog of, of cover songs and the things that I think have influenced you, I just knew it was there. And I'll say to people listening at home, um, the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon I would a Time, just and jump in and say that. Jump Wait, in and say ahead. it. You say your, you make your point about it, and then I'll make mine. I was just going to say that the, one of the fun things about the movie is KHJ is playing in the background at all times of that movie. So it's like I a know. character in the movie. Completely. And actually, when I saw it, and I have a, uh, I have two brothers. One is a year older than me. So we were essentially like twins growing up and we were so obsessed with with the radio and everything that was coming out of it um, during that period. And when we both had a similar reaction after we saw that film, which is like, wait a minute, we're a little older than Quentin Tarantino. He stole our childhood. He stole our childhood and he gets all the credit for it, even though it's just a completely irrational sort of um, feeling of being like robbed somehow, because I don't, it makes zero sense, but um, (laughs) more power to all artists out there making art. 
you know, this is, this is, you know, in my life, what I live for is, is, is art. So it was cool that he did it, but I used to watch Mannix. <laughs> and I was like, I, I had been posting like Mannix um, when I first started on Twitter, like way back when, I guess it was 2012, um, <laughs> somewhere around there. I started posting like cool stuff from the 60s, like the Mannix uh, opening credit sequence. And and then he had he had Brad Pitt watching Mannix. I was like, that's my childhood, dude. <laughs> My nephew is named Mannix. My, oh, really? Yes, my brother Ryan Smith named my 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 nephew Mannix after that show. Oh my God, it was the greatest show. Uh, and so LA. So so LA, and and there was this. Um, so I'm very close with both my brothers, but my older brother, because we were so close in age and we were only a grade apart in school, um, he has you know shared love of the same music, but also he always likes to recall the day that the Beatles actually came to our neighborhood. I think it was 1964. They were in town to do the Hollywood Bowl, I think, those two nights at the Hollywood Bowl. And they went to a charity event in our neighborhood. And everybody in the neighborhood got wind of the fact that the Beatles were like down the street and just, you know, kind of came out of their homes and parents with kids. And we all just stood out out in front of the house where the party was going on. It was it was a charity event. I don't remember what the charity was, but I do know that Andrew Gold, the artist Andrew Gold, whose mom was Marnie Nixon, who was the singing voice of um, Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, and she was the singing voice, I think, in West Side Story, the Natalie Wood version from the 60s. But anyway, I may have, we may need to fact, fact check that, but... He was there with his mom meeting the Beatles. He got to meet the Beatles. We all just stood outside hoping to catch a glimpse of the lads from Liverpool, you know? I but, think the I think the daughter, I think it was like a publicist house in Brentwood. So, was that yeah, where it was? Yeah, I that think, might have been right. Yep. I think that the that the daughter of the, you know, the homeowner, yeah. uh, she found a bunch of the photos, just really bad photos taken from that backyard. Because they were just in that, a fancy backyard in Brentwood. So yeah. I think those photos are actually out online if people want to go Ooh, hunt I, them I down. I want to see those because that was a big deal. That was that day was a big deal. The day the Beatles came to our neighborhood, yeah, because well, we were so into the Beatles. Well, and, and the the amazing thing, you know, all of my heroes, everyone talks about seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, or you know, Shindig or whatever. Yeah, but the thing that I love about you is that there are some other bands that have been very influential in your life. So what I thought that I would do today on the Brando cast is I will take, I'm going to take everyone on a little bit of a musical journey. I'm going to build a time machine <laughs> and I'm going to fly Susanna Hoffs around the world and we're going to revisit, or we're going to, yeah, we're going to visit some of those moments that I believe were very important in her life. Seminal moments. Seminal moments, if you will, in a time <laughs> machine. So on our first stop... We're going to New York. It's January 6th, 1965, and it's the zombies on Hullabaloo. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Everyone knows that you're a zombies fan. Well, 
So many of us got to watch you induct them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which must have been an out-of-body experience for you. So tell us about your love of the zombies. And did you watch Hullabaloo when you were a kid? I know that I watched quite a bit of Ed Sullivan and um, Laughing and the Smothers Brothers and that, but I don't remember specifically seeing the zombies on the telly. But I do remember hearing them in the backseat of the station wagon and the sort of like way that they orchestrate with Colin doing that, ah, you know, the, the, the vocal little sigh, which was so entrancing. That I heard, I'm sure, in the car. And that was the beginning of my zombie infatuation. And then it ultimately led to me going to see them when they started to perform and, um, and tour again and meeting them, and singing with them on a couple of occasions. And then suddenly them asking me to induct them, which I, when I got the call, I was literally looking over my shoulder going, wait, are you talking to me? I mean, are you asking me? I was so humbled and so uh, sort of, I'm so starstruck by them in a way, but I love them all. They're such great human beings. And, you know, they're, Colin's singing is just extraordinary. Uh, and I learned so much from from great bands, great musicians, great singers. You know, I'm always soaking up, like, what is their secret sauce? What is their magic? Colin um, is so unabashedly emotional when he sings. You know, there's no shoegazing going on here. It's all like, tell it like it is, tell it like you feel. And so uh, that was something that, you know, whether it was Paul McCartney doing those little screams or those oohs, those little like kind of raspy, emotional outbursts, if you will, on a record. Um, all of those things sort of informed my journey as a singer, for sure. I recently, I've started watching the Ronnie Wood show on YouTube. I think it's a British show, but it's basically Ronnie Wood in a studio with his guitars and his guests come in and they play songs for each other. So the Ronnie Wood talking to Paul McCartney, which was probably recorded about a year ago, is insane because they're playing late 50s, early 60s stuff that they loved. Of and course. they're both playing along an acoustic guitar and they're talking about exactly what you just said about picking up little tricks and little oohs and little ahs and, you know, little pulls on the guitar. And it's amazing because both of them had the same exact approach to music when they were listening to records. They were inspired by those moments that they could take steal, borrow, sprinkle their own sauce on. Exactly. And my friend John Worcester. Do you know John Worcester? Uh, everyone, I am a fan of John Worcester because well, I love Bob Mould and he's been in Bob Mould's band for... Exactly. The, right. But he sent me a little clip of the show you were just speaking of when Paul was on it and they mentioned the bangles and I lost my mind. <laughs> they were playing the uh, chains or something. They were playing... I think that was it. I, yeah. I have it somewhere on my phone. And Ronnie Wood says, sounds like the Bengals. <laughs> he compared, was it the Shirelles? I, I can't remember. I don't want to get they it They played Chains. Did you they guys played, do that? No, but he was just, the fact that he, that he hyperlinked in his mind between their beloved music of the girl groups that were happening in the very early 60s, the harmonies and just the sonic 
texture of it, you know, and to liken it for him to, to compare the bangles to that was just like, what just happened? <laughs> That's so cool. So, yeah. Well, speaking of harmonies, it's still 1965. Let's fly across the country. She wasn't at this club on this night because she was too young, but she was only a few miles away. This is March 26th, 1965, and it's The Birds at Ciro's on Sunset. The reason why now, I know that The Birds have had a massive influence on you. Mm-hmm. I fucking love The Birds, <laughs> and I wish that I could go back in time to Ciro's on Sunset, which is now the comedy store for people playing along at home. Because I just love seeing bands in small spaces in L.A. And I just can't imagine being on the Sunset Strip back then to watch the birds live. Oh, me too. I mean, as a kid, we were so obsessed with anything. And and since then, like, you know, decades later, that had to do with the Sunset Strip in the 1960s. Because anytime you caught the glimpse, whether it's the go-go girls in the little, on the stage, or in these, like, weird mod... Uh, cages almost, which seems very politically incorrect, I'm sure now. But it was like it was like a vibe of of love and 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 expression. So it all was part of that soup. But you see this like iconic footage of bands that we loved that informed everything, um, at least on my musical journey from those venues or the ones in New York, and but especially along the Sunset Strip. And there were a lot of cheesy uh, 60s movies in which they kind of tried to recreate the vibe of that, you know, happening that was going on then of just kids and bands coming out of the woodwork and bands influencing bands. And that was part of the Rickenbacker thing for me. It was like starting with, you know, what is that? What is that magical sound coming out of (laughs) the guitar on Ticket to Ride in the opening? And then there it is again. On bird songs, you know, they're the jingle jangle and the, the shimmer of like, it's a Rickenbacker and it looks so cool. So, of course, my first electric guitar is going to be in a, a Rickenbacker. <laughs> right? I mean. When did you get that? Well, I got that in Berkeley, I would say. So I went to, co- I, I graduated um, in 1976. I was a little bit young for my grade. Um, And I went to college when I was young. So I went to college when I was 17 at UC Berkeley up in the Bay Area, which was like also sort of peace and love. It's still, even though it was the 70s, it was still flower power in Berkeley. And I went to see the Sex Pistols last ever show, as it turned out. Nobody knew that it would be that. And I saw not long after the Patti Smith group there, Um, but... I think that I bought that guitar. I think I think it was the punk movement that really got me going. And sort of it was the suddenly the acoustic guitar was replaced by electric guitars and the Rickenbacker was that first guitar. I mean, I might have had access to an SG before that, but I can't remember the timeline of it, but I'm 90% sure it was the Rickenbacker I got in the Bay Area when after I saw the Sex Pistols. Were you as a kid, let me take it back to the Sunset Strip. Were you as a kid, as a little kid, aware of what the older kids were doing on that side of town? Were you aware that there was this strip of like 
very colorful young people. There were some riots later on in the 60s, the teenage riots that happened in, on the Sunset Strip. You know, you're Rodney Bingenheimer in the days before he's a K-Rock DJ. He's roaming up and down the Sunset Strip, hanging out with Sonny and Cher. Like, right. were you aware that that was happening in L.A. as a kid? Um, somewhat, somewhat. Yeah. Um, because my parents took us to see music. They took me to the Troubadour. Mm. I was like the youngest person in the Troubadour when Judy Collins played and Dan Tana's it's an Italian restaurant next door. We ate there. And then it was a common thing to go to Dan Tana's and then go over to just walk out next door to the Troubadour. And, um, and I met and somehow I got to go backstage and say hello to to um, Judy Collins, because I guess I was just watching, you know, so I was so um, entranced by her that she somehow noticed this kid in the audience, this little girl. So I and apparently I went to a Donovan concert at the Hollywood Bowl, too, but I don't remember it. But I'm a massive Donovan fan. So it's just the the troubadour um Speaking of that era and that that type of venue, I would say the whiskey and the troubadour, though it wasn't on the strip, were very iconic places where the whole scene was just exploding. So I was aware of it. I definitely was. Well, the third stop on my time traveling tour with Susanna Hoffs, I'm trying to put you in the troubadour on September 17th, 1969 for the very first Linda Ronstadt concert at the Troubadour. <laughs> I know you're a fan of Linda Ronstadt, and I'm hoping that you could tell us a few things about like hearing her as a young person and growing with her music. Right. I mean, Linda, first of all, my uncle was a, a, a guitar player in LA and taught me taught me guitar and was my first guitar teacher and gave me my first guitar. But um, he actually was sort of in Linda's sort of orbit a bit because he he was uh, the guitar repairman at McCabe's guitar shop in Santa Monica, which has been there forever. And he knew a lot of he was he's still friends with a lot of people in Linda's world: Carla Bonoff, Steve Ferguson. He, he just was part, he was part of their circle and, and played with her a little bit back then. Also, he played in Leonard Nimoy's band. <laughs> yeah. I grew up, because when you grow up in L.A., you just meet people. So my family was close with the Nimoy's because our, we all went to preschool together. My Amazing. Brother, my brothers and I and 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 uh, Adam and Julie Nimoy. So they, so we grew up pre, pre-Star Trek, even, even you know, all the way um, before he even was was Spock, you know. (laughs) Um, But um, so my uncle, my uncle was a musician. So he's the one who taught me how to play guitar. So I had that Stone Ponies record with different drum on it. And it's just like magic. I don't know how else to explain. It was like a lightning bolt striking you all those kind of cliched analogies. But when I heard her singing those songs, like I wasn't, I didn't be respond in a passive way. It was like, there was, I had no choice. It was one of those things where I was like, I had no choice, but to try to sing along and study it. I didn't know I was studying it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just wanting to learn it. And I want, I wanted to, when you sing, you're really in the, in the present moment. And you're really like, 
it must be, I guess, almost like sports or ice skating or some something where you're you're fully immersed in it. There's no room for almost any other thought, you know, and that's what music would cast that kind of spell over me. So I sang along to those Linda Ronset records over and over. My parents didn't mind. My brothers got really annoyed with me and we'd like sort of, you know, slam shut my door, but they appreciated music too. They loved music too. Um, but it was annoying how, how much I would practice along and, and I never would tire of what I'm like this to this day. I can listen to music that I love over and over again and never get tired or bored of it ever. It's weird. I don't know what that is. But the same was true for when Joni Mitchell, when I started to discover Bonnie Raitt and Joni Mitchell records. Like I learned so much about singing from Joni, so, so much. And now I'm so happy what's happening with Blue. And I, you know, I loved that record so much as a kid. I, I literally memorized every nuance that she did. And um, there's probably a club of people all around the world who can sing along to those records and just, you know, like with per perfect, you know, um, knowing every nuance, you know, not not perfectly, not better than Joni, but just what I mean is they know the roadmap of it, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I just, about a week ago, I watched The Last Waltz uh, and her version of Coyote with the band. Uh, I, I literally stopped it and watched it about six times in a row. Right? She's amazing. She's incredible. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe we'll take a little tangent. We'll drive up Laurel Canyon and we'll go, we'll, we'll take a stop at, at Joni's house, uh, in Laurel Canyon. I think I told you this before we did the, uh, you know, we talked last week before, you know, we booked the show. I, I host a show on Sirius radio on Friday nights with Amit Zappa, who is ah. Frank Zappa's son. And the Zappa DNA is the DNA of Laurel Canyon. Absolutely. So, I, and I've gotten the history of Laurel Canyon from uh, Gail Zappa, who passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, but they live next door to Joni. Oh, the first, really the first, door. yeah. For Frank and Gail lived. Their first house was like right next door, or or a door away from Joni's house. Um, and you know, Gail said, you know, they had to move because at a certain point, that scene got so heavy and crazy with young people coming to Southern California, wanting to participate, wanting to meet everybody, hoping yeah. to run into Joni at the country store or right. hoping to run into David Crosby or party with David Crosby, that it got unsafe for them. So they moved deeper into the canyon. You know, they, they had a hippie show up at the at the door one day naked with a gun. Oh, God, that's terrible. Right. So it made them move deeper into the canyon. But I've, I've gotten I've been fortunate to, to have so many amazing stories uh, about Laurel Canyon, uh, which has traditionally been one of the locations in L.A. where musicians love to to habitate. <laughs> yes. There's that famous picture of Joni sitting on the lawn. I would assume it was her house in, in Laurel Canyon. And uh, Eric Clapton's just like staring, you know, just completely dumbstruck by what she's doing because nobody plays like Joni. I mean, just the way that she reinvented how to playing guitar and then she brings in the dulcimer and what she did with the dulcimer um was so extraordinary i mean and and also just feeling like liberated so that she could just reinvent every melody in every verse it's never the same i mean she just she, that jazz instinct has always that improv instinct has always been so part of her dna and how she how she expresses herself when she sings it's 
it's like she's so in the moment with it. It's it's got it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So when you're first starting out and you're a fan of all of this music, are you thinking about it on this profound, deep level? Or were you was it more instinctual for you when you're first starting out and playing and and getting together with even someone in a room and playing guitar and playing some songs that you like? Were you thinking about it this way? Because you've just everything you just did was so thorough in your analysis of Joni Mitchell. Like I'm wondering if like if you thought about it that way back then. Well, I don't know that I thought about it. I thought I just I think back then I I didn't know that I would end up being a musician for my job. You know, I I, I didn't know that that I would be so lucky that the thing that was my passion would turn out to be something that I could actually do. And, and that I would make records and they would come out and people would hear them. Or that first time I heard something that we had done on the radio and all that, like those were all just like shocking and exciting and thrilling moments. But I think back then I didn't have the vocabulary for how to describe it. I think it was just this, it was like, I don't know, what are, I don't even know. I think when I would play music, I would... Dis everything else would disappear. This and I didn't know. I, I am having the words for it now, and I would just be, I would just be lost in it. Mm-hmm. Like all the walls go away, and you're just. Uh, it's like a, the way a kid will read a book. Like I used, to, I've always loved reading too. And when I would read a book, I would just, I don't know, the room would disappear, and I'd just be in the land, the landia of the book. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but you know what I mean. I'd be in the land of the book. And I would be, tr- I would be transported to another u- galaxy or another universe or another place, and that's what ha- used to happen to me as a kid. I would just focus on the music, and everything else would just disappear. So I didn't really know what what I didn't have a way to express that. It's just that I kept saying, "I want to do more of that." Please, can I do more of that? Were you drawn more to lyrics, or were you drawn more to hooks, or both at the same time? Well, that's a really interesting question because there are people who always focus on lyrics initially, like it is kind of an either or, you know, in a certain way. I think that I initially noticed the melodies and the, and the music, mm-hmm. but it's not just the melody and the music. It's the emotion that it elicited in me. These are things that I couldn't, I couldn't describe to you if you asked me when I was a kid, but I would get lost in the wave and the dance of the music and the in the emotion that it it brought to the surface in me. And then I would be like, whoa, that's the lyric? To this day, I still I, I'm still struck when I'll listen to something like Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones, and I'd be like, Oh my God, there's so much innuendo going on in here. I never put it together. I never put it together. Oh my gosh. So anyway, so yes, to answer your question long way around, I think I was more swept up in the music. I love that. I'll tell you this. I'll give you some of my musical background. Okay. I'm born in 67. My parents are not hippies. So pop music is in the air. Fifth Dimension Association. I think that's why I love that music so much. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is Led Zeppelin, The Who, Rolling Stones, obviously The Beatles. It's classic rock. 70s Pittsburgh. Divorce, my mother moves us to Albuquerque, New Mexico at the end of the 70s. Um, I believe that you're married to somebody who grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
I think he's the most important uh, student to graduate from El Dorado High School ah, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Did you go? No, there? I, I did not. I went to the the Albuquerque Academy. Which oh, was the, that's the, the cool. Pri- that's the cool. That's the cool school, right? No. Well, it wasn't cool to go there. If you if you said uh, that you went to the academy to a public school kid back in the early '80s, you might get punched. Oh, Ooh, is that where the rich kids go? But uh, no, El Dorado was an amazing high school. Um, But I I lived near El Dorado High School. So I knew that that your husband, Jay, went there. Um, But let me just say, but Albuquerque, especially at the end of the 70s and the early 80s, was a metal, 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 metal. I think because our Native American brothers love metal. So uh, starting in seventh grade, I could take the bus to the state fairgrounds in the middle of the city uh, with my brother, Ryan. Rush, ACDC, Van Halen, Ozzy, Dio, Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden. Every year, <laughs> every year, those bands came to Albuquerque because, you know, as you know, when you're touring the country, if you're traveling between Dallas and Phoenix, you might as well stop in Albuquerque. So I was drawn to vibe, <laughs> you know, because yes. I, I just, again, I've seen Iron Maiden 39 times. What? <laughs> and that has everything to do with growing up in Albuquerque. And yeah. I'll still fly back. To go to see shows, uh, you know, I flew back for the last Black Sabbath show because it's like a time warp being in Albuquerque, seeing some of those acts because it's the same people. It's the same kind of people. It's a third white, a third Native American, a third New Mexican, uh, and it's glorious. So um, that is my long-winded way of saying I'm absolutely drawn to hooks because lyrics about dragons and kings and elves and wizards <laughs> doesn't exactly appeal to me. But uh, the fun thing for me, though, in Albuquerque, we had MTV right away. Yeah. So even though I'm wearing my Russian Iron Maiden shirts to the Academy every day, uh, I'm starting to see, because of MTV, oh, there's this band Depeche Mode, and oh, there's this band New Order, and oh, there's this song called Hero Takes a Fall by a band <laughs> called The Bangles. Wow. Okay, I kind of like that stuff. Yeah. And so that helped me transition to what became my real love, which was, I would say, like the college rock of the mid-80s, late-80s, you know, all the music before Nirvana. And then I I transitioned out of metal (laughs) and into the replace. I quit dressing like I'm a member of Iron Maiden, and I start (laughs) dressing like I'm uh, a member of the replacements around 85, 86. So... That's sort of where I'm coming from. Oh, well, I get it. Yeah. I, I, I when as you're talking about this, it makes total sense to me. And it's funny how we, I remember I had slightly fraught relationship with new wave because I was so committed to being a sixties and seventies aficionado. And I wasn't quite ready, but somehow punk, Punk sparked me in a way more than New Wave. And I'm I'm not, I don't mean, I loved Elvis Costello. I loved Nick Lowe. But it was, you know, it was just, I. It, some of the New Wave I wasn't quite clicking with. But that said, I it, it took sort of my kids um, who are now in their 20s going crazy over 80s and New Wave stuff that sort of brought me back and actually sort of the reevaluation of the 80s. Because even when we were in the 80s, the Bangles, as an 80s band, known as an 80s band, I was like, we wanted to drag the 60s aesthetic kicking and screaming into the 80s and sort of like 
revise the 80s with our with our 60s-ness and 70s <laughs> influences. So, but now I've come full circle and I just embrace the 80s for in all its glory and all its madness and all its somewhat cheesiness, right? I don't know. I uh, well, I'm, I'm telling you, I now. can't wait to see Duran Duran live. Oh, I, 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 I mean, I'm just dying for them to come to the Hollywood Bowl again. Because um, again, as a metalhead in Albuquerque, New Mexico, like you weren't allowed, I wasn't allowed to admit well, that I listened to that stuff. Let's go, let's go to it together. I would, no, nothing would make me happier. That would that be would like, be so fun. <laughs> We, we would, wait, I would, I will, I will spring for the box. I will spend all my money for a box no, up front. Now we'll go in board. on it together. <laughs> Unless I know them. Ah, uh, hilarious. So maybe we can go backstage. Um, but I, I will also say that, you know, Hey, uh, before the pandemic, not long before the pandemic, Depeche Mode at the Hollywood bowl. Incredible. One of the best live shows I've seen in recent years. Dave Kahan is like Freddie Mercury. Wow. Like I didn't know because I was such a snob and uh-huh. I was such a, like a Nirvana, like, you know, you talk about, you know, you know, John Worcester, like when I heard Husker do and the replacements, that's when my brain just went like, I am that I, this oh, I is who that. I am now. You know, I dress okay. like this. My tribe is, are the people that like this. I like other record store nerds. You know what I mean? But yeah. now the fun thing about now is it's just so fun to go back and embrace it all. Exactly. And I get I get the love of Nirvana and the replacements and that whole period. I mean, they were making some beautiful, deeply emotional I mean a music. I connect them to, you know, Big Star actually in some way. You know, I, it, it wasn't it wasn't until my friend David Roback, who had been a childhood friend, and then when we were in college together, we we were dating during that period and we formed our first band and that that all kind of led to the bangles for me. But, you know, that whole period, he was the one who turned me on to Big Star and, and Sid Barrett and Nick Drake. And like those bands were very big influence, became big influences. But I didn't know about them in the 70s. Right. No idea. Well, that's what I'm learning now is that for my in my experience growing up in Pittsburgh and Albuquerque, the radio stations they didn't play album cuts of the birds. They didn't play album cuts of, of the good pink Floyd. They didn't play album cuts of, of the Ramones. Even it was so hard to find that now it's easy to find it. And I'm going back and I'm having a Bee Gees explosion now because of the documentary. Some of the really early stuff. It's incredible. Well, you did run to me, which really I only rediscovered recently because of the documentary the, the great Bee Gees documentary that was on um, was on HBO Max or whatever. Yeah, yes, yes. I'm like, why didn't they play that song? Run to me is an incredible song. Incredible, incredible. I mean, um, in my own time is a is a is a really cool track. We used to come out um, at our Bengals shows to that. It has the best drum fills ever. <laughs> They're so good. They're all such great singers. I love the Bee Gees so much, so so much. And again, you know. Sometimes it's just what we have access to, because obviously we had access to Saturday Night Fever and people think of that as the Bee Gees and they have no idea that to love somebody or um, in my own time or some of the earlier, you know, or some of the album tracks from those early from their 60s stuff. I mean, they were just exceptional. They have a song, you know this, I'll say this to the people, you know this, but I'll say this to the people listening to the show. The Bee Gees have a song from the 60s called Harry Braff, and it's basically a kink song. 
It almost sounds like a Blur song, but it's it's a it's a it's a song about a race car driver, and wow. it's poppy and it's fun and it's weird and it's not you know this is not disco BGS this is sixties London BGS. Um, yeah. All right, let's get back in the time machine because Susanna referenced this other moment in her life that I know was incredibly important to her because it's May thirteenth, nineteen seventy eight, at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. And I believe she is seeing Patti Smith. The boy looked at Johnny. Johnny wanted to run. Johnny wanted to move. But the movie kept moving as planned. The boy gripped Johnny. He pressed him against a locker. He drove it in. He drove it home. He drove it deep in Johnny. The boy disappeared. Johnny fell on his knees. Started pushing his head. Tell me about that night. Well, um, Patty was, you know, a huge influence on me and is a huge influence on me. I remember getting her first record on vinyl. And then when I was at Berkeley, I bought her poetry books and I became obsessed with Patty the artist, Patty the muse, Patty the, the rebel, Patty the, the poet. And I'm up, in, I'm up in Berkeley, it's the 70s, punk is happening, art is everywhere I look, and I'm in art school there. I, I started in theater and dance, I was in their dance company, and then I just had this sudden desire to want to paint and make sculpture and just be an art student, so I switched majors from dance, theater and dance to art. And, you know, all of these bands, there had been all the stadium rock bands the giant the giant bands like the 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 rock star the rock gods let's say zeppelin and the who coming through the bay area and suddenly there's this club scene super vibrant and happening and then i discovered the winterland ballroom and the, and i went to those two shows there the sex pistols and to see the patty S- smith group but it was like it was like a lightning bolt hitting me when i figured out about patty and i was like whoa you know, here I've been singing the Laurel Canyon songs and I've been, you know, it's all extremely melodic and I'm learning to play guitar so I can play along and accompany myself. And we have even jumped over prog rock. So I don't know if we should go <laughs> a bit for prog because that had an influence on me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when Matthew suggested us covering um, I've Seen All Good People, Your Move slash your move. Yep. Um, I was just like, that was, that was also like standing out, looking at the ocean and a wave coming and just bowling you over and just like, what just hit me? That, that record, that song was, was, you know, really important in my life, but that's how I felt when I heard that first Patti Smith record. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I actually have had occasion to um, meet Patti and say hello to her and, and, you know, probably gush a bit too much about how how much I love her, but she's just one of the great human beings on this planet Earth. And she is truly an inspiration in all ways, not only through her art, but just she's just a glorious human being. And I, I absolutely adore her. When you saw her perform live, you know, obviously Patti Smith back in the mid-70s, late-70s was not going to be on television. There was no MTV. There was right. no internet. There was no YouTube. There was just ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS. You know, so you're not going to get to see, unless you're looking at a picture of Patti Smith and Rolling Stone or Cream Magazine, what is it like seeing your hero live 
I mean, are, are you watching the way she's moving as well as the way that yeah. she's singing? I mean, are you just absorbing all of that stuff and thinking about how she's performing? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was probably not even 20 years old. Maybe I was, had just turned 20. Yeah, no, I think I had just turned 20. I think it was in, or 19. I was either 19 or 20 around that time. Um, and I was studying the whole thing. I mean, it, it, uh, in my mind, because I'd been a dance major and dance is such a rigorous practice, you can't even take a day off. You know, like if you take a day off, you're not going to do that pirouette or that move as well as you did the day before. It's like being an athlete or something. You know, I always look at when I see the athletes, the gymnasts and the ice skaters, I'm like, it's so, I, I am so aware from having been a dancer that <laughs> it's like, it's a very, it's a, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline, but I was seeing, I was starting to realize with the whole punk and new wave movement that it wasn't just about the music. It was, it was much b- bigger than that. It was, a, it was a, really an art statement. It was, it was theater. It was theater and, and, and it was costumes and it was, it was, it was almost like a statement. It was almost like, you know, when artists have a, um, I forget the word for it, but they have like the artist statement. My work is about such and such. I decided to do this project to talk about this or that aspect of being a human being or whatever, whatever it may be. That was what Patty was to me. I, she really, because with the Beatles, I saw them, I loved them. They were my first crush, my first musical crush. I was swept away by them, but it wasn't until I was in college and studying art as an art major that I began to see how being in a band and being a musician and writing songs and how you perform and how you present the music when you're doing it in a live setting or even with your album cover, you know, even with your album album cover, you are making an art project, you're making a statement. And that's that really mattered to me then, that really, kind of sealed the deal for me so that when I graduated, you know, a lot of my friends went to the jobs office to get ideas on what, you know, how to start their career. I was like, I couldn't exactly walk into the jobs office and say, I'm starting a band. Do you have any advice? (laughs) Know what I mean? Like there was the counselors wouldn't have known what to say, you know? So I got home and I just started advertising myself, throwing flyers all over town, going to the whiskey, a go, go, listing all my favorite bands and, you know, ultimately it led me and, and putting, um, you know, an ad in the recycler, which was basically Craigslist of the times, um, before way pre-internet, obviously. So I just did it the old fashioned, you know, grassroots kind of way, but I knew, I knew that's what I had to at least try. So there was no, was there, was there, uh, I'm sure that there were a bunch of opportunities for you in the Bay area. And you must have had so many great friends who stayed in that area. Yeah, I mean, what, Dave, was it? What, what, uh, just go ahead, Dave. Dave. Back from the Rain Parade, and then went on to do Mazzy Star mm-hmm. with Hope Sandoval. No, he was he was my first musical partner. But when we sort of decided to split up as a couple, because we dated in college and lived together, um, that's when I saw the Go Go's play at the at the Whiskey, I think, and that's when I thought, you know what? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to be in a band with someone you've been dating or, you know, I'm sure ABBA went through <laughs> stuff like that. You know, any band that, or even uh, Stevie Nicks and, and Lindsey Buckingham, it adds a little um, complexity 
to the relationship because bands as as is are very hard marriages in a certain way. I mean, of the best of times, it's magnificent. And at the worst, it's difficult. And it's like there was that documentary, I forget, was it Metallica about they had to bring the the, the therapist in to help the band? Yes. It was Metallica. <laughs> it was Metallica. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it, bands are com- complicated. So, um, but I forgot what, where you started with your. <laughs> no, I was. I was. We were basically talking about you know your decision to move back to Los Angeles, to Southern oh, California yeah. after leaving Berkeley. Yeah, and 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 actually, you know, I came back. I had a day job working for my uncle who had a ceramics factory making. Not so much pottery, but those little 80s like ceramic pins. And that's oh how I met Linda Ronstadt because Linda's niece, her sister's daughter, worked in the factory with me. And and I often was alone in this dark room listening to K-Earth 101 with oldies. So the oldies in the 80s were the 60s. Right. Now K-Earth plays 80s music as oldies. That, it's that, terrible. I can't stand it. <laughs> when you hear K Earth 101 and then they just start playing uh, yeah. Huey Lewis, and you're like, wait, wait, what happened to K Earth? <laughs> because that's where I heard Hazy's Shade of Winter the first time. Of course. I heard I heard the Simon and Garfunkel acoustic folk rock version of Hazy's Shade of Winter, and I thought, this is perfect for the Bangles. Mm-hmm. And we started playing it in our set. It was in that it was in that factory girl job that I had. That I it was I was just wall to wall KHT all oldies. Amazing. Do yeah. you remember where your first your first apartment was in LA? Well, I lived in garages one after the other. My parents were cool. I love my parents. Uh, thank you, parents. Um, but they um, I didn't want to live in the main house. I wanted my own space. So they let me kind of trick out the garage and put furniture in there. And luckily, my mom had a little like hot plate and a little coffee maker in the garage because it w- it had been kind of the kids rumpus room. I mean, that's the thing about growing up in L.A. It, the weather permits that you can tr- take your garage where you would normally want to keep your car out of the snow or the rain and the sleet and the hail and all that. And you've got this like little game room for the kids to have their sleepovers. So we had that kind of room. And then it wasn't until the end of the eighties that I finally moved out of a garage. I seriously (laughs) lived in a garage, um, like a little converted, but it was cool because I was on the road a lot. So there wasn't much to take care of. It was just like a kind of loft space almost except it was a garage that's amazing so so you you avoid the scummy 17 people living in disgrace land on sunset and castle kind of situation i somehow managed to avoid that <laughs> and i i took a humble garage and turned it you know i put cool posters i remember the garage and the first garage i lived in had my um it had my brothers um had left a blondie standee from a record store so i had a giant Blonde, Debbie Harry there with me. So I didn't feel so alone. Debbie Harry was in the <laughs> a standee of Debbie Harry from like Tower Records or something was in my in my apartment slash garage. <laughs> yeah. That's so amazing. I uh, I went to school in Chicago. I went to Northwestern. Excellent. And, and then I came to L.A. Uh, with I moved out here with my closest friends from school. And I think, you know, we moved out here in the fall of 1990. So so we've missed all the, we've missed all the significant serious waves of stuff. 
you yeah. know, and, and sunset, the sunset strip in 1990 was pure cheese metal. It was warrant and the children of rats and Tesla and just cheese, cheese, cheese all day. So we missed that because the, the first thing we did was go to the whiskey, you know, go to the troubadour. No matter what, uh-huh. you know, Madame Wong's is closed because I, you know, I've spent four years in Chicago, which is an amazing place to an incredible music city, absorbing incredible That's punk hard. rock. But everything was sort of it was remnants of and L.A. doesn't keep its places around for very long. You know, there's no more Cafe de Grand. Madame Wong's I is know. gone. That was gone already. Uh, I mean the build. I mean the building is there. I mean I'm yeah, five minutes from venues. there. Yeah, then they, they weren't venues. The, everything was gone. So you know, I just love talking to people like you to sort of live in uh, those because I wanted I wanted to build my own time machine, and yeah. that's where I wanted to be. Uh-huh. I wanted to be at the whiskey on those nights that you were there. Uh-huh. You know, because not only are the Dills and the Weirdos and the Go Go's playing there, uh-huh. but Van Halen is playing there as well. Albuquerque's yeah. favorite band. Right. <laughs> well, those were the days playing the whiskey. And, you know, and we did, we were friends with all the punk. We were friends with the Circle Jerks. We, we, you know, in the early days of the Bangles, we were quite enmeshed in the punk world. It was really quite sweet that they adopted us because here we are wearing our go-go boots and dressing super 60s styled. And, and they just accepted us. It was really quite cool that that happened well you know keith morris admitted to me that he decided to form the circle jerks at a journey concert ah <laughs> that's so great that's so great so it's not as pure i mean that's the, the great thing about la is there's so much incredible music so many scenes happening simultaneously yeah um, you know, our friend Michael Penn is roaming around Los Angeles when when you're a young person as well, you know, forming his band Doll Congress. Ah, that's such a great name. That's such a great name. You should have if you ever get to see uh, Amy and Michael again, you should have him play some of that stuff, because that's like his 1979, 80, 81 version of what he wants to do with music. You wow. Know? I love that. Um the, you said roaming, and I thought Romeo in black jeans. Um, no myth. <laughs> yeah. No myth. That song, when that came, to this day, I kind of can't, can hardly listen to the song for just losing my mind at how amazing it sounds. So I, that's sort of a weird way of putting it. What I'm saying is that that record as a record is just mind blowing to me. Sonically and, and every little bit about it. Talk about great lyrics. Talk about perfect arrangement talk about sonically just just blows my mind every time well he didn't grow up too far away from you so you know know. you know you you guys had you know sort of parallel lives and you know growing up here here in la right uh, as you did Susanna. it is time for us to wrap up the brando cast you have graced me with your presence today i hope this conversation has not been too scattershot as i try to pull these stories out of you no it's great um i am just i'm in awe of uh, of your vast musical knowledge and your experience uh and you just gave me everything in droves today i'm i mean i'm i'm just eternally grateful to you does jay ever go back to albuquerque new mexico yeah we yeah we we've spent a lot of time in albuquerque does he still I have know. family there Oh yeah. Oh, oh no no. Actually, yes no. He does. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. His parents recently 
moved from there, but he's got aunts and uncles and cousins and, and friends. We regularly go there. I mean, not since the pandemic, but, but we're due to go and, and visit everybody. I, I believe I'm getting on the road and driving out for the Albuquerque Academy reunion, the class yeah, of 1986. Wow, <laughs> and I, I need my food fix. I need my uh, green chili cheeseburgers. Oh, and I need, yeah. uh, I need my meal at Sadie's uh, in the Valley. Uh, is there anything that you want to promote uh, before we wrap up? Is there anything you want to throw out there? Anything you want to talk that, you know, just mention that you're working on or, or where can people, you know, absorb everything that is Susanna Hoff's? I would say um, I'm about to release a whole lot of new music on Spotify um, and streaming sites, I should say. Um, and, you know, you, YouTube is now considered a streaming site. So I'm trying to, like, catch up with the f- reality of that and, and try to put music for people who prefer um, to just get music on, on YouTube, try to get the high quality um, sound on there and, and, and start you know, putting things, there's a lot of things missing from the various streaming sites that I know, like uh, some of my Austin Powers music, which I love so much. I'm trying to make sure that at least you can go to YouTube and get, you know, my, uh, my uh, cover of The Look of Love and What's It All About Austin, which Burt Backrack and Hal David actually gave me permission to change from Alfie to Austin. So I love them. Thank them for that. It, that, that meant the world to me. And, um, I just, I worship Burt Backrack, Hal David songs. And again, we didn't tap into that, but that's another way that I learned singing was just singing along to Dionne Warwick, singing all those songs. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, just find me on the Spotify. I'll, I'll find me on the socials. I'll try to alert everybody that new stuff's coming out and say, go there and find it. Cause yeah, it's, it's kind of all over the place not to use a Bengals album album title, but <laughs> happen naturally. Um, music's kind of all over the place, so you have to like. I like to remind people how to find it because that means more than, to me than almost anything when people enjoy the music. So, well, there's so much people out there to. There's so much amazing music uh, given to us by this magical being from another planet. Um, so again, Susanna, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for having me as your guest today. It was uh, a pleasure. <laughs> well, I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing. Uh, we're growing exponentially. So many great guests coming down the pike, but it's impossible to beat Susanna Hoff. So until the next time, cats and kittens. I believe in love. Without true love, we just